This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Our last speaker for the day is Dr. Marion Peters. Um, the uh, presentation is management of cholestatic liver disease, which is really one of uh, several areas that Marion uh, is very well known for in her distinguished career. But I also want to mention that uh, Marion has been the chief of our faculty practice liver clinic and uh, really instrumental in transforming the uh, organization and the practice culture to be like the mo- role model for UCSF. And it was re- very, we're very proud of that and very important to let the referring physician know about this. Uh, so, Marion. Thank you very much, Francis. I see that my time has come and gone. Uh, I also see that you're not allowed to drink until 6 o'clock. I promise I won't talk till then. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, cholestatic liver diseases, and I think we have to think about two sorts, either hepatocellular or cholangio. So actually, hepatocellular disease with a cholestatic component is by far the most common. Viral hepatitis, uh, alcohol, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, all can give you cholestatic uh, components, especially after acute viral hepatitis, and that can be prolonged, and that's way more common than PBC and PSC. We also have to think about uh, infiltrative diseases, Dilly, which I'm not going to talk about, malignancies, paraneoplastic, sepsis, TPN. You can sit at home and write your consult for the patient in the ICU who's yellow. It's always the same list of things. You also have cholangiocellular, and I have handouts that I put in the back of the room and also at the desk that includes all of these. And the two big ones that I'm going to talk about today are primary biliary cholangitis and sclerosing cholangitis. Last year I talked about IgG4, and I'm not going to talk about that. But you can also have secondary sclerosing cholangitis, cystic fibrosis, drug-induced cholangiopathy. Back in the day with HIV, it was very common. We hardly ever see it now. Uh, Duct plate malformations like Corollis, congenital liver fibrosis, and then the host of genetic diseases, of which I am totally ignorant, are things we also have to consider. Graft-versus-host disease, ductopenia. This is a very nice um, cartoon from the easel guidelines this year for PBC, and it's sort of embarrassing, but the easel guidelines all afternoon have done better than the ASLD guidelines, and this is yet another case. So we all have the patient who comes to us with elevated alkaline phosphatase, raised GGT, plus or minus elevated conjugated bilirubin. And easel suggests you do a history physical, which of course we're all very fond of doing, and follow it up with an ultrasound. If there's biliary dilatation, then you move to extrahepatic causes. If there's no biliary dilatation, ask the patient about drugs. The older the patient, the more likely they are to be on multiple drugs, 
and drug-induced liver injury is very common. The younger the patient, if they're not using um, herbs and spices and growth-promoting things sold at the gym, it's highly unlikely they'll have dilly. A female is much more common in terms of having PBC. They recommend AMA, ANA, and serum uh, antibodies. If you don't have an answer, if you have biliary dilatation, go the route of MRCP, EUS, look for sclerosing cholangitis. If you have normal bile ducts, do a liver biopsy, look for parenchymal damage or biliary lesions. And if there's nothing found, then you have to go to your geneticist. And if they also say there is no abnormality, then the next thing is to follow the patient because eventually the patient will declare themselves. We had a young man with elevated ALK-FOS, two liver biopsies, MRCP, nothing diagnostic, and after a year and a half, we did another MRCP and he had PSC. So what about PBC? You all know it's a female pre predominance. One in a 1,000 women over 40 have PBC, according to the EASL guidelines, with quite a significant incidence and prevalence. The age range is really, it, the youngest patient is how often you look for it. It used to be thought to be a disease in, of women in their 60s and 70s because they would come into Sheila Sherlock Yellow, but now we do SMA24s. You can pick up abnormalities in women in their 20s and 30s and early diseases found, all races and socioeconomic classes. Familial cases are rare, but they do occur. Um, Eric Gershwin, who's really a world expert on P PBC and discovered the uh, target of AMA, has about 50 family groups, including a mother-daughter of mine and two si uh, sisters. HLA associations are always seen. In Caucasians, it's DR3 and DR8, but they vary. And you make the diagnosis by having an elevated alkaline phosphatase. So if you find someone with an AMA, a normal alkaline phosphatase, you have to wait. They have to have a positive antimitochondrial antibody in over 90 to 95% of patients. And it's to the PDCE2 subunit of pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. But there are also two other antibody complexes that patient, the AMA can react against. And the biopsy should be consistent, and almost always IgM is elevated. Even though they're not in the guidelines, it's a useful thing to look at because in autoimmune hepatitis, it's an IgG predominance, and in PSC, it's usually an IgG predominance. The histologic staging, all fellows know so they can pass the boards because it's easy to show. Early on, you see the florid duct lesion, then ductular proliferation, fibrosis, and cirrhosis. Here's the florid duct lesion with the bile duct lost and some lymphocytes chewing up what's left, some plasma cells over here. What you don't see here is a few eosinophils, which can be quite common. And here is the granulometer with the, what's left of the bile duct stuck in the middle, 
and you can see what is probably a lot of scarring or, it, or perhaps cirrhosis, making the point that they don't go from one stage to the other. You can have a florid duct lesion, lesion, granulomas, and cirrhosis. To remember that PBC is not always symptomatic, and 40 years ago, Ollie James told us that. For some reason, he convinced his uh, city everybody who came to the blood bank to let him have blood to check AMA. And he found 12% of patients with AMA positive had normal ALKFOS. Half of them were asymptomatic, nearly all of them were anecteric, and most of them were AMA positive. So when we think about staging, it's AMA and IgM that are up early, then alkaline phosphatase, and bilirubin really only comes up at the end when they're coming to see our surgical colleagues. Associated uh, syndromes are, uh, the sicker syndrome is very, very common, thyroiditis and thyroid disease in 20 to 40%, but many patients have arthralgias, arthritis. Crest was first described by Pete Reynolds in patients with PBC, and renal tubular acidosis has been described. So what about the treatments? We all know about Urso. It works in over 50% of patients. It's safe and effective. It works via post-transcriptional mechanisms to increase transporters to enrich Urso in the liver, eliminate bile acid, increase the flow of bile. And when you give a patient Urso, you enrich their normal bile acids by 50% becomes Urso. It's less hydrophobic, less top toxic, and less apoptotic. I say to my patients, bears go to sleep for six months, they don't wake up with cirrhosis. So they get it, that it's a nicer bile acid to have around. Um, they, you can also increase phospholipids in the bile. It's been shown to decrease histologic progression in three out of four multicenter trials. It improves lab tests in all our study that uh, Tony Bass and I were in showed that it decreased, it increased time to transplantation. All patients at any stage appear to benefit, but the earlier patients get the most benefit. Combination with other drugs haven't been shown to be helpful, can be taken in pregnancy, and it's pretty useless in other diseases. But we see people using it. A beta-colic acid that Danielle has beautifully presented to you, the FXR ligand. There are uh, three randomized controlled trials. This is the uh, one from the New England Journal a year ago in which 217 patients with poor response to Urso were placed on a beta-colic acid, and the endpoint was to decrease alkaline phosphatase below 1.67 times the upper limit of normal, which is what the international PBC group uses for, for normal, and to have a normal bilirubin. They were, patients were giving five, given 5 or 10 milligram tablets once daily for 12 months, and you can see that alkaline phosphatase decreased in nearly half the patients on a beta-colic acid compared to 10% on placebo, but pruritus was in 
Two-thirds of patients on a beta-cholic acid compared to a third on placebo. SAEs were similar. They were higher on a beta-cholic acid, but liver-related SAEs were the two in the 5, mil, five to 10 milligram none in the 10, and two in the placebo. And one of these patients was my patient who had cirrhosis, who decompensated and was child's A and developed jaundice, uh, ascites, and very slowly recovered. Thought to be also an interaction between augmentin and a beta-cholic acid. This is another study that's in available on the web but not in the journal yet, from Chris Cowdley in 59 patients who were followed with a beta-cholic acid up to six years. And you can see that alkaline phosphatase had markedly um, normalized in a lot of patients. They had them on 10 milligrams or uh, 50 milligrams, but none of them actually took that. The median dose was 10 to 22 milligrams. Paritis was almost universal, especially at higher doses, and discontinuation was common in a third, and 71% of patients got treated for paritis. Here's showing you the benefit at three months in decreasing compared to placebo in alkaline phosphatase change. Last year, there was a presentation from Harms in Europe of fibrates for PBC. Benzofibrate, which targets PPAR alpha delta gamma, as Danielle has shown you, and phenofibrate PPAR alpha. These are retrospective studies in urso failures, and 129 were given phenofibrate and 69 bezofibrate, followed up for a significant amount of time, and Alkaline phosphatase was baseline, was two times the upper limit of normal in this, and two and a half in the bezofibrate. Uh, uh, Transplant-free survival was high, events-free uh, survival was high, and both drugs showed a 50% decrease in alkphos at one year. They, uh, creatinine was available in 50% of patients and there was no change. They said in their presentation that 30% discontinued treatment, 10% for side effects, but I don't know what they were. There's no follow-up. It hasn't been published. Uh, but 97% of patients were put on these drugs for PBC, even though they haven't been approved. Unfortunately, I was unable to go to ASLD but I didn't see a follow-up. But if anyone has one, they could bring it up in the question and answer phase. It seems an interesting group of drugs that we should think about. It's interesting that the fatty liver drugs, half of the drugs that Danielle is talking about are being studied in PBC, and it's a totally different disease. Or maybe it isn't. So when we talk about... Phase two studies, there are bile acid therapies, FXR agonists, um, FGF analog, and um, the bile acid transporter that's shown to be on bile ducts of patients with PBC and PSC, PPAR agonists, and then immunologic studies in phase two, including chemokines, IL-12, and CD40, 
and e someone is even enthusiastically giving umbilical cord mesenchyme stem cells. So the phenofibrates, apart from all the things they do for the metabolic syndrome, they inhibit bile acid synthesizing enzymes, they upregulate your uh, SIPs, they regulate pro-inflammatory responses, uh, downregulate transcription of NF-kappa B, and stimulate beta-oxidative degradation of fatty acids, as Danielle said. Bezofibrate, which is uh, PPAR agonist, alpha, beta, delta, and gamma, does all of these, plus some um, crosstalk with downregulation of CYP7A1 and being anti-inflammatory, anti-fibrotic, as well as having anti-lipid effects. So I think these, it, it'll be interesting to see if this has moved into phase three studies and we have more follow-up. So what's the survival? Untreated, the data from the UK says 25% of patients with PBC develop end-stage liver disease within 10 years. However, remember there's the Yale data where un, asymptomatic patients at 16 years hadn't developed end-stage liver. So it really depends who you start with. With Urso, the 10-year survival was 90%. So even though we complain that not every patient responds, some patients get a partial response, but it's changed survival. When we look at the impact on, of stage of disease on survival, which is why you see these two different pieces of data, this is a study from the French. On the left, it's 292 patients showing that the eight-year survival, if you have stage one or two, is exceedingly high, 95%. But if you have cirrhosis, it's a 50% seven-year survival. So another reason why it's important to know the phase of the stage of disease, another reason perhaps that we should be doing a biopsy to be able to tell patients what their outcome's going to be. Uh, Fibroscan is in use everywhere, but the data on cholestatic liver disease is very limited. And the French say that you need to have a Fibroscan value of 20 to diagnose cirrhosis. Other studies say you need a Fibroscan value of 14.5. I just think we don't have enough patients we've done Fibroscans on to answer the question. So let's turn to PSC. And this is on the right. This is the same group, 174 patients with PSC. And your survival, if you have early disease at seven years, is lower, but around about 85%. But the 50% survival is really three to five years in her small study. A very nice study that came out in gastro this year looked at over 7,000 PSC patients from 37 centres in North America, Europe, and Australia. Two-thirds were men. Most had classic or large duct disease. A tiny percent, 3.4, had small duct disease, and double that had overlap of PSC and autoimmune. Unfortunately, they excluded the IgG4 patients, which I think in retrospect, 
should have been added because we're, we're diagnosing it more and more often and we would have got some great data. They found 70% developed IBD, of which 56% were UC and 11% Crohn's. The estimated overall survival was 21 years, but a third of them had liver transplant and death with a median of 14 years. They looked at the development of hepatopancreatobiliary malignancies, of which the majority were cholangio, and surprising to me, the incidence rate of malignancy varied enormously by the age of diagnosis. So it was 1.2 per 100 patient years if the patient was younger than 20 when they were diagnosed, and it steadily increased to 21 per 100 patient years in patients diagnosed over the age of 60. There was a lower risk of liver transplant and malignancy in Crohn's disease um, and patients without concomitant IBD compared to ulcerative colitis. So the highest risk was in patients with PSC and ulcerative colitis. Patients who had small duct PSC, only one out of 254. Remember, there's over 7,000 patients, so a very small number with small duct disease, but only one developed cholangio. And being a female was better, higher incidence of cholangio in men. And... So talking about cholangio, how do we diagnose it? I'm very surprised that fish and polysomy, which three years ago was the most exciting new data and everybody was waiting for the next big study, hasn't happened. But I'm going to tell you about it anyway because I think that there's a lot of good information that's helpful but we need longer-term studies. So the first study was in 2013 of 102 patients who didn't have a mass lesion and had an equivocal routine cytology with two years of follow-up. And 29% developed, with equivocal cytology, developed cholangio within two years. Having a CA199 over 129 had a hazard ratio of 3.15, but having polysomy, so lots of extra chromosomes, was 8.70. And having both was predictive of cancer. Uh, in 10 patients who had both, they all got cancer. Patients without any cytologic abnormalities were at minimum risk for the development of cholangio. This was followed by a meta-analysis by uh, Narvan Ethan, who looked at 828 patients and found that fish polysomy was, had a reasonable sensitivity of 68 and specificity of 70. The Mayo followed it up later with a study of 371 patients and found patients with multifocal polysomy in their bile ducts had a hazard ratio of 82. I recently had a patient who went to Mayo. They said she had polysomy. They said she was getting cholangio, and it all went away. So we don't have all the answers yet. So how do we monitor patients? What blood tests do we do? We do liver uh, LFTs, CA99, alpha-fetoprotein, CEA, 
I don't know why we do it, because we've been doing it for 20 years, so we can't change. Probably the only thing of value is the CA-99. When you do an ERCP, it's symptomatic for intervention. That's the reason. But also to look for polysomy, if you can get it. Uh, MRCP should be done every year or two. And the risk of cholangio, as I showed you, increases over time, is higher in people diagnosed older, is higher in patients who have concomitant ulcerative colitis. The medium transplant-free survival is 14 years overall. But remember, the study of 7,000 patients had a survival of 21 years. And the risk of cholangio is always reported at about 10% per 10 years, but it's higher if you have IBD. Urso is not significantly better. High-dose urso is significantly worse and shown to increase the time to transplant at doses of 20 milligrams per kilogram per day. So it's reasonable in some patients to do a trial of 13 milligrams per kilogram per day if there's no response in ALK-FOS at six months to stop. Vancomycin has been studied in children, but not in a randomized controlled fashion and is still being pushed by Stanford. Uh, Fecal transplant is being studied without any answers. All transretinoic acid was... Last year at ASLD thought to be beneficial, but the paper came out and it actually didn't do anything to ALKFOS, even though in the animal model it inhibited bile acid synthesis and reduced markers of inflammation. So to go back to the fatty liver drugs, bezofibrate has been is in a randomized controlled trial in the Netherlands, and fascinating, they got a paper describing the trial published. I thought the days of that happening had long since gone. But so they described the trial, they're going to do it, there are no answers. FXR agonists are being studied and we don't have any data yet, nor URSO, which is a a homologue of ursodeoxycholic acid with more potent anticholestatic, anti-inflammatory and antifibrotic properties in the mouse model has been studied in humans. And this is data that was presented last year and published this year of 161 PBC patients randomized for 12 weeks of NORURSO with four weeks of follow-up. And you can see NORURSO decreased alkaline phosphatase by 12%, 17%, and 26% at increasing doses and was statistically significant compared to placebo, where ALKFOS didn't change. There were dose-dependent benefits with ALT, AST, gamma, GT, exactly the same. Serious adverse events did occur, but uh, whether they're significantly different from the placebo group is not clear. There was no difference in pruritus between the treatment and placebo groups. NORUSO is not, we haven't done studies in the US. So I just want to finish up quickly by giving you the uh, pruritus protocol that you're all very familiar with. You have to do topical things, tell the patient to decrease the temperature of the bath or the shower just a little bit, fewer or lighter clothing, increase 
air conditioning if you're living in the valley, minimize dry skin, use moisturizing soaps like Dove, apply topical moisturizers, and the best is Eucerin, which is thick. After you get out of the shower, quickly don't rub to dry off. Dry most of it off and then put the Eucerin over the moist skin. I don't have shares in Dove or Eucerin. Um, Anion exchange resins, cholestyramine or cholestopol, start at two a day, go up to six a day. If six doesn't work, more isn't better. Separate it from other medicines, especially Urso, or you poop them both out. Um, the NIH 20 years ago showed that you can stabilize mast cells in the skin with doxepin, which is an antidepressant at 100 milligrams, but at little doses, 25, you can actually have an effect on mast cells. It has a benefit in causing our little PBC patients to sleep, so it helps them to sleep because it, they're tiny and it's a big dose. If that doesn't work, uh, hepatic microsomal enzyme induction like rifampin. And what I say is you have to do all of these together. You can't choose one or the other. Then you add Urso to everything. You add doxepin to everything. Then you add the next set. Opioid receptor antagonists help some people. Uh, it's interesting. Auditaxin has been shown, converts um, lysophosphatidylcholine to lysophosphatidic acid. And this LPA, lysophosphatidic acid, is high in patients with pruritus. And could, do we induce autotaxin? There was a mouse model that said we did. I thought we would be moving to the clinic and the patient, and this would be a way of intervening on the pruritus, but nothing's happened. And also for pruritus, benzofibrate is being studied in Europe. This is my slide from last year showing you that even though I say all these diseases are totally separate, they're actually overlapping and you have to really treat what the predominant disease is after you've diagnosed it. Thank you very much. Uh, can I ask you the first question? So can you clarify the dosing or the use of ursodial in PSC because of this, this um, you know, increase in mortality at high doses of uh, ursodial? So there's still an argument, and we still have um, debates on whether to use urso at all in PSC. Keith Lindor at the Mayo showed that 20 milligrams per kilogram per day increased the risk of needing a transplant, increased progression of disease. But that was never shown at 13 milligrams per kilogram per day. So that's the only dose that should be studied, and if it doesn't work in six months, stop the therapy. And how about obeta-cholic acid in cirrhotics? What's the optimal dose? So I think you shouldn't treat cirrhotics with a beta-cholic acid. My patient was child A there in the study. That's the cause of the dear doctor letter. I think you should think very carefully. Most of our patients, when you say you've got a 70 to 90% chance of itching, they say, thank you, doctor. When do you want me to follow up? Uh, it's, it, it's a, they've gone through years of itching, and even though their alkphos may not be normal, it, 
the Urso may have helped the itching enough that they don't want to go on the next drug to get it back. So is there a role of balloon dilatation in PSC? Uh, 25 years ago, the treatment of PSC was rotor-rooter, as often as you could do it, and that was uh, run by Baltimore, Johns Hopkins surgeons. And I think we've evolved over the years to say that we should do ERCP and intervention if the patient is symptomatic, if the patient has cholangitis, if the patient has perhaps increased itching. Now, given that, I have a very strange patient who, after her ERCP, her 400 ALKFOS goes to 100, and slowly it comes up. She gets symptomatic. She gets another rotor-rooter job, and it goes down. But that's the only patient I have of my many patients with PSC that usually I just follow with MRCP because the ERCP doesn't diagnose cholangio. So that's a big problem. Patients are being monitored with ERCPs. We're missing the chance to look for cholangio. You might say, well, so what? We can't cure it. But the Mayo does have a protocol, and are we getting a protocol? For? Cholangio? We're thinking about it. (laughs) In terms of screening? No, in terms of treatment, Can't, liver transplant. Not yet. Not yet. Last question. Do you have any personal experience with vancomycin in your PSC patient that has failed Urso? Yes, my polysomy lady. Her mother actually said first, she was only 19, I presented her last year. Her mother said, I think we'll do a, a stem cell transplant. I said, I don't think so. She's at school in Berkeley doing fine, and that has a 50% mortality. But she did everything. So she went to Stanford. She decided she'd try the Vanco. So we tried it, and we tried it per their recommendations for six months, and it didn't do anything. I've subsequently tried it on two other patients who've requested it. The question is, all the data at Stanford was on pediatric Children And remember, Sheila Sherlock, 50 years ago, said PSC is something that's coming up the portal vein from what's in our gut. Danielle brought up that, you know, fatty liver is what we eat, and not just the amount, but the quality and what's sitting in the gut. And I'm sure PSC is too, and maybe the effect of ankomycin has to be early. They've never done a randomized controlled trial, so I can't answer that. Yeah, last question or comment, Phil. With PSC, I have many patients that have been down south and uh, have failed, and I have one currently who's nine years old listed for transplant. Number two, do you want to mention anything about IBAT inhibitors for cholestasis? No, but feel free to. (laughs) All right. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank all the speakers for such a wonderful job. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.